0: This week on the Back Table Podcast. So you know that the CO two goes from the bottom up because it's a gas. To so the not dependent portion of it, right? So if you are if you are in the middle of the vein, sometimes you're having a hard time to reflux it down into the portal system because you access above the portal vein that is below you. So the trick is what you could do is you puncture a little bit the parenchyma with the needle. You take the stylet out and inject the CO two with the needle in the parenchyma. That will increase the diffusion faster on it and doesn't reflux too much into your hepatic veins. So that helps to opacify the, the proven beautifully. It's amazing how nice you see the proven that way.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com, very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our medical community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Now a quick word from our sponsor, Argonne. Argonne Medical is the manufacturer of the Scorpion Portal Vein Access Series designed to simplify the most complex tips and other portal vein access procedures. Scorpion offers interventional radiologists enhanced visibility, component durability, and novel bidirectional steerability. Transform your tips today. Visit argonmedical.com forward slash Scorpion for more information. And now back to the show. Our guest today is Dr. George Behrens. George is an IR doc based out of the Chicago suburb area. Our topic today is tips and new innovations for TIPS. Our topic today overlaps nicely with our TIPS University series we did with Dr. Emmett Linsky. That was around May of 2022. For those interested, go check out episodes 123 through 126. I think those are gonna segue nicely into this conversation.
0: George, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Chris. I'm glad and happy to be here.
1: All right, for the audience, Will you just tell us a little bit about your uh, background and trainings?
0: So, essentially, Chris, I'm originally from Venezuela. So I did my med school over there, and I was actually doing radiology in uh, Venezuela. And then, of course, I, my, my mind always been in interventional radiology, and um, I was totally different uh, training, put it this way. So I was working with an interventional radiologist. There are two interventional radiologists that were actually trained in the United States and working in building my life over there. I say, well, let me just go to Chicago for six months to do an observership and see how the things are going over there. That was my last trip that I did. And actually, I stayed here. So I started working in Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. And uh, I was working with Hector Ferrell, you might guys know him, Alonso Mark Alonso, and Neil Patel. So of course, seeing the world in the United States clearly opened my mind and say, well, listen, what I'm doing, I, I probably got to come here in the United States. And uh, sure enough, I did my boards and my exams and uh, I was, these guys didn't let me go anywhere and I did my training in interventional radiology over there. So I did radiology and interventional radiology over there and uh, since then I I stayed there for eight years and then I moved to the current practice that I'm on in BIR.
1: That's nice. So Chicago and Rush sucked you in for a residency and a fellowship, and then now Venezuela's lost, the U.S. is gained. So now we have uh, Dr. Behrens.
0: That's absolutely right.
1: So actually I'll give a shout out to Hector. He's now down here at LSU, New Orleans. So I'm, I'm a private practice doc out of New Orleans. And so Hector's at LSU now.
0: Yeah, I, I know exactly. That's why I was telling you because I figured that you will know him.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, we have an NGO club coming up in a couple of weeks. I'll run into Hector. Actually, I think it's coming up on Thursday, so I'll see him pretty soon. All right, so you mentioned, so now you're out of the academic setting, you're in a private practice group. And I, you know I, I took a look at y'all's practice online. Is it a strictly IR practice?
0: Yes, absolutely. So we, we just do interventional radiology, which it's actually a pretty nice setup. So we cover seven hospitals. So we are a clinical base model. I mean, when we say clinical base is absolutely clinical base model. So we see patients, we have an in our main office, we have a, a clinic where we see patients Monday to Fridays, and one physician is going to be seeing patients the whole day over there. And then we have two other clinics that we see patients on it here in Elgin where I'm at right now today. And then another one, actually three more. One is in in Elgin, uh, Advocate Sherman Hospital. We have another clinic in uh, Trinity Hospital in the south side of Chicago. And then we have one in a small hospital called St. Anthony. It's a small community hospital that we, it's close to really, really close to downtown, but we see patients there once a week there.
1: And all the IR docs are interventional radiology?
0: all interventional radiology. We have 10 physicians right now, and it's only a yeah, intervention. We, we don't deal with any diagnostic. I mean, of course, some CTAs and some invasive studies, have, uh, you know, ultrasound studies that we read in a couple of hospitals, but not, I would say 99% of the time is just interventional radiology.
1: That sounds like a great practice. Are you guys hiring right now? I mean, gosh, it seems like, it seems like, I mean, I always see on the SIR forums, like how we're not, you know, we're preparing all these new grads for the brave new world and there's no jobs out there for them, but it sounds like you have the practice that's like very well suited to the new IR doc.
0: It it is, it is actually, you know, sometimes maybe it's a little intimidating for some young peoples when they hear that you have Core 7 hospital that you could be on call and you can be overwhelmed. Not really. I mean, when you're in a community hospital, sure, you're going to, you're going to be busy, you know, especially we, we're clinical based, so we're rounding in all the patients every single day. Saturdays and Sunday, we're rounding in every single of our patients, so you can imagine Sure, it's a it's a little bit um, a little bit of work, but you have also the the PAs. We currently have seven PAs, and they help us to round and and execute all the, the you know the day by day and and seeing the patients' consult progress and and all of that.
1: That's nice. And physician extenders certainly make things a little bit more manageable. All right, so let's talk about uh, your current practice and zooming in a little bit on your portal hypertension practice. Will you kind of dig in and tell us a little bit about it?
0: Oh, absolutely. So. I came with an idea about probably, say, seven years ago, where I want to develop a portal hypertension clinic. It's essentially a clinic where I see the patients with hepatology with transplant surgeons on it. So at the beginning, we were trying to engage, of course, Rush, because that was my first connection on it. So I tried to bring the hepatologists and, and the transplant surgeons to work with us. But as you can imagine, you know, in, in a community hospital, the vast majority of the norm is that you're going to transfer the patient or the care to a tertiary center. And what, what that does is just a patient goes to the tertiary center and they get all the follow-up, the images, the, the workup, and everything done because, of course, the transplant surgery, they want to have that there in their institution. So what my, my original idea was decentralized decentralize it, completely opposite. Instead of me sending the patient to tertiary center, I want to bring the tertiary center to the local community hospital. So after a few years battling with different groups, we actually partnered with the University of Chicago. And currently, we have a hepatologist, transplant hepatologist, and transplant surgeon coming to the interventional radiology clinic to see the patients together. Two times a month, they come to our clinic. We have at least 15 patients, and we evaluate the patients all together. So meaning, patients get room into one of the consult rooms, the nurses talk to the patient, Get chief complain and all the symptoms and everything, they gather all the data, and then we sit down with the hepatologist and the transplant surgeon, and we make a plan for them. So meaning that it's all multidisciplinary, but again, it's a completely opposite of the standard practice that the people does, all right, They'll send the patient to tertiary care. So all the work for transplant, everything, uh, let's say, um, interventional oncology, Y90, therapies, all is in locally. The patient only goes to the tertiary center for One visit that they have to do with the social workers and nutrition and a couple things like that. And the rest of the stuff, the next time that they go there is for transplant.
1: How did you get buy-in from the University of Chicago? Because I I imagine that there was some pushback. I mean, there had to be some uphill battles in terms of of getting this set up. There's no way it happened overnight.
0: You have to understand that this is the perfect setting for it, Chicago. Why? Because we have five academic, big academic centers all located in the same area. So you have a five people trying to fight for the same patients all in the center. The problem is that the hospital, the, the patients that are located 45, one hour away, they don't want to travel one hour to get the lab drawn or to get a CT scan. So they say, why, why I cannot get this in my local hospital? So of course, you know, that's the reason why we took me almost seven years to convince them because it's trying to tell them, Hey, listen, the only way we have the patients, you guys have the tools the only way that, that we all are going to win if we decentralize the system where they come and we do all the work up locally and then our institution is going to win because they're going to get all the all the work up for the patient and the wine ideal all the treatment or the the tips eh, whatever you want to name it on and uh, the cardiac evaluation the angiogram if they need a, a cardiac angio if they need a contracity of the chest or so whatever and also you're going to get it because the patient is going knows that it, we have a team that locally that is going to be taking care of them in case that they need something. To this point right now, we have actually referrals from the tertiary center to us because the patients say, I don't want to go there. Why, if I can have it here locally, why I'm going to get it? And at the same time, they bring a higher expertise because all the team, like the GI physicians, the cardiologists, have to be to the tertiary level, meaning that they have to be really expert of what the patient needs for transplantation. So then increase the communication between the tertiary center and a local hospital and everybody wins on it.
1: Well, that's a really neat setup. And I know that you said everyone wins, but really as, as you were talking, George, really what I heard was like the patient's the big winner here. I mean, you're, you're talking about a patient population that has to travel to get into Chicago. I mean, I don't know Chicago, but I would imagine traffic can be difficult if you're not from the area or you're not from like immediately in Chicago city then, you know, it's probably kind of a bear to get into some of these big tertiary referral centers. I mean, just the parking lots alone for hospitals can be a little intimidating.
0: Absolutely.
1: All right, so parking lots aside, your portal hypertension patients, what's the most common way for them to get plugged into your system? Like what are the common referrals that you're seeing when a patient gets referred to, you know, your quote unquote portal hypertension clinic?
0: So the typical story will be the paracentesis, right? So let's make it simple, a patient that come into a hospital through the ear and then, you know, they, they come bloated and they have either, it's going to be the first time on their recurring flyers that they come through the ear with abdominal distension. So immediately, you know, again, as I was telling you, the fact that we are clinically oriented, we don't get consulted for a paracentesis. We were consulted for evaluation of the patients on it. So when the patient become admitted to the hospital, we see them and say, well, listen, this guy has clearly cirrhosis. So then have been evaluated before, no, never been evaluated. So we talked to GI and then we start doing well the workup. Oh, definitely this patient is going to need a workup for poor hypertension. So therefore, we, of course, we're going to do a paracentesis right now for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. But then after this, the patient is going to go home and we're going to bring you back as an outpatient for TJ liver biopsy, for screening HCC, colonoscopy for GI and da, 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 da. And all the steps that is needed for the poor hypertension workup.
1: All right. so let's just say like a lot of that work is done. So they've made it through your clinic and they've seen hepatology, you know, maybe the referrals for recurrent ascites. And and now you're actually working this patient up for a TIPS. I know that some of the legwork has already been done, but specifically, do you get anything for the TIPS procedure? Like, do you like a particular cross-sectional imaging? Do you get an echo
0: beforehand? Yeah. So sure. We all our patients get a cross-sectional image and they're gonna get a triple CT or an MRI. Of course, the underlying cause of of cirrhosis is also evaluated. So we evaluate from the excluding any viral hepatitis to hemochromatosis, and we do this workup. We do the workup for hemochromatosis for Wilson disease, for one trypsin We've seen all this edit we, we do all this. We we develop like a, a template of All the all the labs that they need, we get cross-sectional image or an MRI. Then uh, we get all of my patients are going to get an echo, a heart echo, and most of our patients, I would say ninety-eight percent of them, they're going to get a TJ liver biopsy. Not because of the tissue; it's more for if they are clearly cirrhotic, we just do it for hemodynamics. But if if we really need to anything that looks suspicious, we're going to of course get the tissue in a way that we have. If we see any type of let's say that it's not really cirrhotic appearance on it will Nash, And then we start to guide them through it for, for evaluation of fatty liver diseases on it, you know?
1: Okay. So day of the procedure. So workup's been done, you have the patient, they're here for the procedure. Let's just start out with something basic.
0: Sedation, GA? General anesthesia. Yeah. All our tips are general anesthesia, for sure. It's just for make the procedure simpler in the sense of timing. You know, before tips type, was type we're taking, you know, probably Hours, two hours or so. So nowadays it's an hour, an hour and a half procedure. To be honest with you, and uh, we would rather prefer to do in general anesthesia because, you say, everybody's happier. The nurses are happier. You know, patient doesn't really move at all, so make it easy for us.
1: So general anesthesia,
0: paracentesis, same day of the procedure. Absolutely. If we if we are doing a, if this if the tip is for asitis, I will always leave a catheter in the abdomen. You know, we we did a study many years ago, probably seven or something with a hepatologist back in Rush, Vanfield, where we doing a paracentesis versus sticking a drain there for 72 hours. You know, these patients that come in and become admitted and they are requiring paracentesis every, you know, whatever, it's so three four days. And it was kind of annoying that you have to be repeating the paracentesis. And one of the guys said, well, you put it, if you're suspecting SVP, you do it and 72 hours later, you do it again see, well, whatever. So what we did was sticking a tube there. And we saw that there was no difference in, in in infections on the on this small study that we did there. So for that reason, any patient that is coming for for ascites, I'll stick a uh, eight French catheter in and I leave it in. For many reasons. I'm draining the asitis, make it more comfortable. And then if I'm suspicious, I mean I'm concerned about bleeding or whatever, it's gonna get me there and everybody sleep well that night.
1: Fair enough. After that, so the pair is done, the eight French drain is in place, uh, where do you start?
0: So uh, I'll do my, of course, all the procedures are done on their ultrasound guided, the axis, ultrasound guided access in the IJ, go IJ axis.
1: Do you like right IJ, left IJ?
0: Right IJ. Even even sometimes we, when we have, a, we have a few patients that they have central venous stenosis on the right for whatever reason, you know, like uh, they have lines before or whatever. Sometimes we even prefer to recanalize that and going through doing that rather than going to the left. But, I mean, left, actually, I'll tell you the truth, the left axis. It's actually better from the stability of the cannula so because of the difference of angles you know when you go from the left you cross the heart and then you you put your cannula on the right hepatic vein your cannula stay there doesn't kick you out like uh, when you're in the right to be honest with you actually i anecdotically from uh, not, an, not my anecdote actually it was i think it was hector and a friend of hector who based on the disposition of the room they say well we we didn't have any other choice. I would use the left IJ all the time because the way that the room was set up and actually we find out that it was actually better. So I took it as a, an idea and said so once in a while, we do it from the left end. And it's true, actually, the cannula stay more in the position on it, on the left side. But, you know, based on you're working on the right side, the, the, the way that the monitors are, and then you have the C-arm, that is not really that comfortable to be trying to move your head to be able to see the screen. Because most of our room are not really comfortable to, to do this type of procedures, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah. I echo all those sentiments. I mean, the people who go left IJ, there are a lot of good reasons to go left IJ, but in the end, it's just, you know, for me, operator comfort. So right IJ access, and then 10 French
0: sheath, take it from there. So we got the 10 French sheath, then what next? I always measure the pressures in the IBC and the right atrium. Always, I when I always see if there's any gradient in the IBC, it's probably because, you know, we, we were doing this for a research project, I mean, many years ago. So we decided to continue doing it, or I decided to continue doing it, and I, I still do it. Once in a while, you see a little dose gradients across the IBC that you were wondering whether they have something to do with it or not, or a web or something. But truly speaking, 99% of the time, nothing is, it's not really that helpful, but I'm still doing it. Then I use a multipurpose catheter to get into the body grains. I go either way. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't kill myself on trying to get whether the right or the middle. I mean, I, I don't, I really don't care. As long as I get into <laughs> a nice, good hepatic vein that is juicy and that that I feel that it, it's easy to get access in, that I can park my cannula. I think that's gonna be my my way to do it. And uh, there are certain circumstances where it's hard to get into the right hepatic vein. So then I use a, a launcher catheter, one of those cardiac launchers, six French, with a little reverse curve. It's fascinating. You put out this guiding catheter with a record, you form it in the um, AL 1.5. So you, you, you form it in the inferior cable cava and you pull, and that thing is going to get inside of the paddock vein in a heartbeat. I mean, it's like, it goes so easy into that. So that's really when I struggle more than three, four minutes trying to get the paddock vein, forget it. Just give me the launcher AL one and a half and just park it there and I'll get it right there.
1: All right. That's a good tip. I haven't heard that. So the AL. AL one and a half, well, one and a half or two. Six
0: French launcher. Okay. All right. I'll have to remember that one. Yeah. They have like a little re- reverse curve on it. And uh, you can actually use other the catheters like um, sometimes when it's when you're having a really hard time to to maintain or, or keep the access well. So I use something even a CMOS too. because when you pull, you're advancing that catheter more further in. So you can put a really steep or the amplus backwards. So in a way that you can advance your cannula. I always advance the cannula like over the wire. And inside of the sheath. So my sheath is in the hepatic vein and over the wire. So, with the idea that I have two ways to make sure my cannula is not going to cause any type of laceration or anything like that. So,
1: at this point, one of a couple of catheter options to get into the hepatic vein. It doesn't seem like you're precious about whether you get right hepatic or middle hepatic, just whatever one gives you a favorable anatomy,
0: make a couple of throws. Correct. So, then after I've, after I have my catheter in the, um, Veins, I, of course, I should have enogram. I confirm that the hepatic vein is suitable and good anatomy to be able to hold my cannula in place. And then I just put a balloon, a catheter balloon. Okay, I put a catheter balloon, one, because I want to measure the pressures in the, the wedge versus the free. However, like I said before, most of my patients already have a TJ liter biopsy or hemodynamic evaluation. So therefore I know what the grainy is, but it's still confirming the day of the procedure. You know, because you want to double check or proceed or or whatever, you also want to have it pre and post because you you want to know how much you decrease your gradient at the end. All right. So I, I put my uh, occlusion balloon catheter. I just even a Bernstein, those Bernstein occlusion balloon. Cook used to have one that was spectacular for it, but they took it out of the market. And uh, fortunately, this flow directed balloon, so that they, they, they took it out of the market. So Bernstein and Arrow also has another one that we use for it. Okay. So. Hmm. I measure my pressures in the wedge and the free hepatic veins. And if I have any doubt about the gradient or I see that my, remember, I measure already my IVC and the right atrial pressure. If I see that the gradients in between or something fishy, or I see that the the right atrial pressure is high, I might even go and do pulmonary wedge pressures. Just to make sure, depending also of the echo. You know, I, I'm just giving you the, the broad of things that I might be doing before doing the tips with the idea that I have a completely workup of the hemodynamics on it. Of course. So I measure my pressures, let's say in the free hepatic, watch hepatic vein. So then I inflate my balloon and I do my CO2 portogram. The way that I get into my portal vein or my guidance to get into the portal system is gonna be the CO2 portogram. All right, so you like the, you like the CO2 portogram, right? I love it. I still believe that it's going to be the best way for me to see it. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of people talk about the eye scatterer. They talk about, you know, there are so many good tools to get a guidance on it. And I get it. But when you learn in one way, it's really difficult for you to change it, right? So in my brain, I have this. Of course, I review my CT scan before the procedure. So I have a good sense of how the portal vein is located. So therefore, I just confirm it to have my two landmarks that I need to be able to do my tips successfully.
1: I'm with you, I think, especially in a, in a lot of the procedures we do, not just the tips, but there are many roads
0: that lead to Rome. Sure. And, and, I, I, and I will say, you know, a lot of people always ask me, why are you going to use ice? Or let's say you have a really small port of vein, why are you going to use the ice catheter? I mean, honestly, it will be a distraction for me in, in my brain. Why? Because I have, I have it already painted, painted in my brain where the portal vein is in relations. I use bony landmarks, I use many other tools. So when I'm in the procedure, I know exactly where I have to go. But let's say this, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you another tips, because I think it's important for the people who want to do CO2 programs that sometimes they're failing to opacify the portal vein. And here's the trick. So you know that the CO2 goes from the bottom up because it's a gas, the non-dependent, the non-dependent portion of it, right? So if you are, if you are in the middle of the vein, sometimes you're having a hard time to reflux it down into the portal system because you access above the portal vein that is below you. So the trick is you use your, I mean, in the past I used to use with the rush Shushida or, well, still if I have it, I would use it. So sometimes what you could do is you puncture a little bit of parenchyma with the needle, you take the stylet out and inject the CO2 with the needle in the parenchyma, that will increase the diffusion faster on it and doesn't reflux too much into your hepatic veins. So that helped to opacify the, the problem beautifully. So it's a tips for people who have not done it. It's amazing how nice you see the protein that way.
1: So actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I did a whole episode of CO2, basically tips and tricks with Jim Caridi, who had worked at Tulane and he told us about that exact tip. He even said, you know, if you don't want to stick your tips needle into the parenchyma, he's like, you can just put a little 22 gauge needle percutaneously into the needle. He's like, you can shoot a portogram. So a lot of neat things to do with CO2. And so um, thanks for bringing that up. All right, so you have your landmarks, you have your catheter and cannula in the right hepatic or middle hepatic, and then you got your portogram. What next?
0: So then of course, you know, at this point we're gonna advance the cannula. So let's say we're gonna advance the cannula into the paddock veins. So again, I do it over the wire inside of the sheath, meaning the sheath in the paddock vein, really deep in the paddock vein. So I advance my cannula over it. So let's say it's, you know, the liver is floating in too much of a side. So sometimes you feel that you have to do a lot of pressure and maybe you feel that the wire is not going to give you enough support. Sometimes what I do is I put the amplet wire backwards. So I put the stiff end in and I do it over the amplax wire. Nothing is going to happen. It's like doing a TJ liver biopsy. What's the worst case scenario? The amplax is going to go one, two centimeters inside of the liver. So what? Nothing is going to happen. As long as you're watching it, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So then I, I advance my cannula in and then I essentially aim. I mean, when when I advance in the cannula, I go a little further deep, of course, right? And then you you bring it back. So what I bring it into a position that I feel I'm a little bit beyond of where I want to really park it. So then I unsheat the cannula. The cannula is already exposed where I think I'm going to be. So then I bring the cannula back to about two fingers from the pedicle. So I really want to be close to the ostium. Probably the the most frequent mistake that I've seen of people trying to do tips is the cannula is too far in. So it's really difficult for you to get a portal vein when you have your cannula really about five centimeters from the ostium of the hepatic vein. So I really want to be a a two centimeter, three centimeters from the ostium of the hepatic vein.
1: I just wanted to drill down on that tip for some of our uh, younger audience members or early trainees and that you're talking about whenever you're starting to pick a landing zone to start making your throws, you don't wanna be deep, deep or peripheral within the hepatic vein, just hard to hit a portal vein. And so you're more central, you said one to two centimeters beyond the ostium of the IBC and the
0: hepatic vein, and that's where you wanna start making some throws. Exactly right, exactly right. So again, so you remember I was just telling you that I use sometimes the back end of the apple. So I advance my cannula, inside of the sheath. So I bring the sheath back. What I think I'm going to bring, I mean, I'm bringing my sheath onto the tip of the cannula. I bring my whole system back and I leave the tip of the, the back end of the amplet. Sometimes what I do is I puncture the parenchyma with the back of the amplet and then anchor it and then do anti forward pressure. You know, with the idea that if you go forward pressure, so you're, you're sort of like making an indentation or a bump into the paddock vein. Sure, you might be getting into a little bit of the parenchyma with the cannula, but that's okay that's what you're going to do. That's the tip, but that's part of the tip. So, okay. But, but that will help you to have a little bit of support into your tissue and the cannula have less risk of pushing you out of the, into the IVC. Yeah.
1: And for the younger audience members or early trainees, like one of the hurdles with the tips is that you have these really angulated tight angles or acute angles on your hepatic veins. And so those hepatic veins want to keep kicking you out back into the IVC. So. George is just describing a situation where you're kind of anchoring right there with the back of the implants. So now that you've got uh, your setup and you're ready to make some throws, how do you go about it?
0: So then, of course, now we're gonna advance your needle and a splash catheter on it. So I'll tell you before this, well, of course you have several different sets that you can use, right? You have the ring, the roshishida, and now currently the Scorpion. We move now to the Scorpion for different reasons. And honestly, I can give you the goods and pros on each one, and I think I want to do that. So I'm going to tell you what I used to do before with the Rosh So Rosh has this catheter. It's a 5 French catheter that has this stylet in where the needle is flexible. The needle was really a straight needle with a flexible tip, put it this way. So when you were advancing the needle inside of the cannula, sometimes this needle, it would flex on it. So you have to do a really integrate and forceful a steady pressure forward to be able to cross the parenchyma, of course, depending upon how stiff the, the liver was, right? If, the, if you have a really cirrhotic liver with a scar down liver, it was sometimes even harder on it. So you have to have an uh, pushing the cannula forward to maintain it in place and then advancing the needle with each catheter with continuous forward pressure enough that you can continue in getting through the parenchyma. So I used to advance the needle all the way in. I didn't care whether I was extra capsule or not. I just advanced all the way in because always you can pull back. So, of course, with that said, you have to take the stylet out and then you put a 3 ccs range. 10 ccs range with 3cc of contrast, a straight contrast. So then I, I was able to aspirate with one hand holding the cannula with my with my left hand and with the right hand. I was just having this 10cc with 3cc of straight contrast and aspirate it. Then when I see blood, that blood back, I just inject a little bit. And that's how I knew whether I was in the portal vein or not.
1: Yeah, for the Roche set, like momentum's very much your friend, like as you exactly described. Exactly
0: right. Yep. yep.
1: Okay, so the Roche set, so standard, deep, deep throw, pull back, once you hit portal, you aspirate blood and puff some contrast, confirm you're in the portal system.
0: Yeah. So then after that, let's say I'm in the portal vein, so then I will since the Glide Advantage came out of the market, since that wire came out, that's a wire that I use for, for getting into it. I think it's like a wire meant for tips because you have like the tent, uh, uh, like a, this floppy end, a glide sort of tip. And then you have the extra support over it for advancing all your devices balloon and the scent on it. So and Rapid Exchange, you, you will not lose a, the access that easy, put it this way. So I use Glide Advantage. 035, 180. You don't need longer than that. And then I use a torque. So I really put the tip of the wire just outside of the catheter, just about a centimeter, two centimeters out of the catheter, and I just rotate with the torque device. Torque, 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 torque. And the wire usually will fly in into the portal vein. I mean, all the people that i seen around me that they, you know, they want me to, to be with them, younger, you know, people that were in a group or whatever. So the common mistake that I seen is that people are trying to push forward rather than that rotate the wire. You rotate the wire, the wire is gonna get into the portal vein if you have a good access. So if you're trying to advance it forward, what you're gonna do is get into the parenchyma, and honestly, it doesn't really go anywhere. So it's just rotate the wire. The wire will fly into the portal vein if you really have a good access.
1: Yeah, so if you have the access, some spinsky, some clockwise rotation, and it's gonna find the lumen and then boom, you're in. Boom.
0: You're in. Absolutely. So then I was still talking to the Rosh So let's say that I get it in. So I'm in the portal vein. However, you know, always get in the back of my mind. Should I'm really in the portal vein? Is this a bile duct? Of course, if they're not, if they're going to the, the splenic vein, you're golden, right? So you know where you're going. But it's sometimes, you know, like, are you in the artery? These are the type of things that come to your brain, right? So usually what I just, or what I used to do is I advance the wire until I have a secure place on it. I pin and pull my catheter, my five French catheter that come in the Russia shield, said the blue little catheter. And then I, I just advance a 65 cat. With a 65 cat, it give me a little bit, the, the extra centimeters that I need to be able to get into the portal vein. And then I just shoot a portogram, and I know for sure that I'm the portal vein. And from then on, it's just a matter of advancing your wire and get the tips or the track dilated if you need to, or advance the cannula over the wire. Right, right.
1: But once you've confirmed that you're in the portal vein, the game is won, and now you're just cleaning up, really.
0: Exactly right. Okay. So now now I want to talk to you about a little of the Argon set, because it, this is a little thing that you have to change in your practice on it or in the in the way that you're doing. It. Because this set, despite that the length of the catheter per se or the cannula are the same, the Argon has a handle. So if you, if you remember the Rosh Hashida, it was like a little metallic plate with an arrow on it that you just rotated. So the argon or the scorpion has a handle that is a plastic handle that measures about 10 centimeters. So the catheter itself measures similarly length. One is 51 centimeter, the other one is 52. However, you have to add those 10 centimeters of the handle. So the reason I'm telling you that, because you know that I was saying three minutes ago that once I'm in the portal vein, you have to advance it. I advance a 65 Bernstein or a glycath, sorry, to show that I'm in the portal So 65 is not going to be long enough. You're going to need an 80 centimeter catheter. So then if I was going to use the same glycath, I'm talking about now a hundred. So then you have a little bit longer, longer length there, or you can use any other catheter that you have 80 centimeters on it. But most of the time, more catheters are in my labs are 65 or 90 or a hundred. So I don't have anything in between, to be honest with. So it's, it's a similar story. So another thing that I want to point to you that a difference of the two sets is that the scorpion needle is curved.
1: Okay, it's got a curve to it, so you don't have to add your own curve. So you have more uh, ability to track anterior rather than
0: just cranial caudal. Correct. So that that helps you because you have the curve from the cannula, plus you have the curve of the needle. So the zoom of the two curves give you a really good angle. Of course, you can put a, one pointing anterior and the other one pointing posterior. So then you have an S shape, so to speak. So th- that's a good thing because you can actually guide your needle the direction that you want to get it into. It. So you can say, well, I'm in the in the right hepatic vein. So my cannula is pointing anterior, but turn out that my portal vein is a little more medial. So then you can get your other needle pointed a little more medial. So then you have one guiding you anterior and the other one going a little more medial into it. Does that make sense what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. So you have, the, you have basically the advantage of a curved cannula tip that gives you some directionality and then a curved needle tip, which adds to the directionality. And those things don't have to be perfectly congruent. I mean, you know, one can be say, okay, now I want to torque the handle anteriorly,
0: but then your needle can get you Either lateral or medial, or or whichever direction you need to go. Exactly right. That's a that's an important thing there. Other thing that I want to add to that is the uh, the fact that again you have two versions of it. So they have one that is a stylet, like your roshushida. You know the stylet that you have the, the needle that is curved, right? And then you advance your catheter on it, right? You you put your your stylet inside of the the stylet inside of the catheter. So then you have the curved needle, and then you have one that is hollow in the inside. So you have the stylet that is hollow, that is like a, a like a needle. So it's not quite like a Rosh Hashira. It's sort of like a colapinto, so to speak, where you have a catheter with a hollow stylet. So actually you can inject and push forward on it.
1: Do you like the one that's styletted or different ones for different
0: occasions? I like the hollow. The reason for that is that I can see blood coming towards me. So in the situation where you have the hollow, Because when you have the
1: shut, you describe a situation where you advance as far as possible and it's a pull back, you aspirate, and then you puff contrast. But when you have the hollow, are you doing something different? So has
0: your technique changed between the two? It does change a little bit. Of course, when you have a hollow needle and you are going through a parenchyma, you have the theoretical risk that that you're going to have some tissue in the tip of the needle. So then you have to always do a little push forward, a little push forward, just a tiny bit, like a point... Once you see just a little push, just to push that little plug on it, and then you're gonna see the blood. But what I have done more frequently, I'm not sure how many I have done with the with argon, but I will tell you about eight, ten of them already. So what I what I've done so far right now is that I I see the blood coming towards me, and then I use it as there was a stylet on it. So meaning I pull the stylet out or the needle out, and I leave the little catheter, and I use the catheter as a as a catheter. Another difference that these two catheter has, meaning the catheter from Roshushida and the catheter from the Argon, is that the luminal diameter. The Cook set has a 0.38 catheter, like a wire, like any other catheter, 0.38. The Argon is at 0.4, 0.04. So it's a little bigger. And that gives you a little more extra rotation, a little that little space on it. When you are moving the wire or rotating the wire that allowed you to have a little more space that the wire to trying to find out the hole in the direction that you want to go forward. Does it make sense what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, that does. I, I didn't realize like that just, I guess it's just a fraction of a millimeter gives you a little bit more play with the wire. And, and in your experience, that gives you some better, the wires is more likely to track into the portal that way, or it just gives you a little extra
0: maneuverability. It gives you more maneuverability. So you, you feel it, you, you feel the difference in your hands. So it's, it's maybe subtle, but when you start doing it, you're going to realize, I, of course, feel different. And then it's when you say, oh, now I get it. So when I saw the specifications, I say, now I understand why this happened. And another tip there, because, again, uh, the part of the idea of the podcast is to give you a little tips of what I learned so far with this. George, we, we, we want all the tips. We don't just want some of the tips, man. We want them all. Well, let's, let's try to give you more all that I, can, that I know. I, I'm sure that there are going to be people having ten thousand more of this. So the angle of the cut of the needle is pointing up. So I'm not sure whether, uh, how can I visualize, but it's pointing up. I'm visualizing, I'm visualizing the tip of a twee needle, kind of. Correct, exactly right. So you imagine the twee needle when the hole is pointing up.
1: Yes, yeah. So like that needle gives you, or the, the
0: outlet of the needle gives you directionability also, uh, but keep going. Exactly right. So imagine that. So you have the hole pointing up and then you have two devices or two needles or two, curves on it. So you have the curve of the cannula and then you have the curve of the needle and then you have an angle in the tip of the needle that is pointing even up. What that's doing is giving you against the wall of the vessel. So sometimes that doesn't allow you to be able to advance or to move the, the, the wires around. Remember, it's a needle. So you technically should not be advancing hydrophilic needles through that because you're going to rip off the coating on it. Right. So what you what I do is I take the needle out. So that way the hole is straight. So and then you are going to be able to get into the vessel straight into it. And if you are going against the wall, what you got to do is lift your devices. So you have a you have a tube, right? So if you lift your handle up towards the ceiling, so the curve make it more horizontal, more down. So then you're going to be able to get it away of the upper over wall of the vessel. Okay. And, and the other trick that I've been learning with this is that it's a longer set, right? Because we say that the cannula is the same length plus 10 centimeter of the handle. This 10 centimeter of the handle allowed you that if you push down towards the floor, you have the handle in your hand and you push down, the curve is going to be more horizontal in the the, the planes of the needle. So you have a curve here. So if you move it, it's like a, a swing on it.
1: Okay. It's got a pivot point. It's got a pivot point. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. When you go down, so then the angle is going to be more anterior it. And when you go down, you're going to be more cephalocaudal. So with those two, with those two angles that you have between the cannula and the needle, you can play also now on handle the cannula towards the ceiling or towards the floor the, and giving you the extra angle that you might need to have it more horizontal, the poking or the tract or a little more angle cranial So I, I guess in short, what you're describing is like the
1: the set that you're using now, like the Argon set, it's giving you more steerability and maneuverability to just access the portal system. Like you, you've now had, is it actually creating like a difference like clinically in terms of like a shorter time to
0: get from hepatic to portal? At this point, yes. At the beginning, it didn't. Because of course, I have to learn. Yeah, got a learning curve. Everything's got a learning curve, of course. It's going three steps back and trying to learn the whole idea of it. But now that I understood and get the science behind it and why, I mean, the different tricks that I can do with it. Now, honestly, I have the graphs on it and I know exactly how to manipulate it in a way that I, I need to get in my access for.
1: Nice. All right. So now that you've accessed Portal, And say you're able to get the wire. You said you like an advantage, a wire Advantage. So you have your wire Advantage, you either park it in the splenic or park it in the SMV. Any tips or, not tips, but sometimes this can be a place where people get hung up in terms of like just getting your cannula across, like doddering it across. And I'm just interested in to hear your technique about how you get the the parenchyma dilated and get your um, sheath
0: across. If I have a really straight tract, Okay, I mean, it really straight and I feel feasible. What, what I always try to do is advance. Maybe it's a little bit dangerous for people that are younger in their career, but I, I have, I advance enough my glide advantage where I have, you know, that there is a little dot that tells you that the transition point between the soft and the core, are like a heavy core, more rigid of the part of the wire. So I advance that as far as I can go inside of the portal vein, and I try to advance the cannula inside of the portal vein. So I tried to, instead of dilate the track, I was trying to advance the whole thing inside of the portal vein as much as I can. So you're not the first
1: person to have talked about that. So I think some of the sets are designed to do that. Is that the case with some of the sets that you're using that the, like it's all designed like to go over the sheath and the cannular design to get into the portal without having to do a lot of dilation. Like when you have a kind of a straight shot, right?
0: Yeah, if, we, if you have a straight shot, it's absolutely feasible and it and goes smooth. And then what you, once you have your set inside of the portal vein, you advance your sheath over the set, and then you're already in the portal vein. So then really what you got to do is just, if you have enough experience to know what lengths of stent you're going to need, you're pretty much done there. You just put deploy the stent and dilate it. Or if you really want to be puristic and you want to measure it, that I would recommend to all the people that is in training or recently graduated or they don't have, they're not doing tips, many tips a year still measure it, measure your length of the stent. For other than that, just go ahead and eyeball on it, and you almost not gonna go wrong with it.
1: Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, after you've gotten the, the cannula through and you've done a portogram, can you talk a little bit about deploying the stent, stent landing zone, and what you're kind of going for as far as like the stent deployment?
0: Sure. So again, we do the portogram. If we need to measure, we put a measuring pigtail and then you're trying to measure on it. Honestly, what I try to look into is going to be where the diaphragm is crossing the right atrium. You know that there is like a little V-shaped structure where the diaphragm is crossing the right atrium. That is where my proximal or my cephalic portion of the stent is going to be. And my distal, of course, is going to be the entrance side in the portal vein. Essentially, I advance my sheath all the way into the portal vein. I open and flare up the self expandable portion of the bare metal portion of the Viator stent. Of course, I will think that everybody in the United States will use Viator mainly for all this. I don't expect anyone to send a wall stent anymore, unless you don't have it, I guess. I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but
1: I'd say a large portion
0: of people are now
1: using the Viators.
0: Yes. I, <laughs> I, I I hope too, because well, I mean, you you might run into a place where you don't have it and then you're gonna be creative and get I get it and get a, a wall stent and then put a, another cover stent in the parenchymal portion of it. Sure. I mean it's many types and techniques described for that. So essentially I try as much as possible to open the bare metal portion, not in the main portal vein itself. If I if I have a, a really good right portal, I will deploy it right there. But if I don't have a choice because the right, I got my access is really central. I will open in the main portal vein. I just leave, I will open until the ring, the metallic, the gold ring that is in the, in the center. I open it and I will say probably about one centimeter. I leave it the sheath between the ring and the tip of the sheath. I will leave a one centimeter and then I start to pull a little bit. When I'm already in the parenchyma, like a, for sure, I'm really close to where I'm going to be deploying it. And then I unsheath the whole stent. And then I tagged a little bit on it. I, I'm, I pull a little bit to make sure that it's exactly in the access point of the port of it. That's why I try to avoid dil- pre dilation because I don't, I'm always having the fear that I want to leave a certain area of the parenchyma uncovered. You know, I want to have, make sure that the whole part is covered. The whole parenchyma portion is all, is covered.
1: Yeah. So what you're kind of describing is like that tactile sensation of when you're pulling back. So you've, you've uncovered the distal two centimeters, which for some of the younger audience or early trainees, that's uncovered. And so you're pulling back. So you're about three centimeters of the stint is uncovered. So you have two centimeters distally, which is uncovered. And then the ones, hold on, I'm doing a terrible job of summarizing. You actually did a better job. No, than you,
0: you, you did it. You're you doing fine. I'm following you perfectly fine. So you, it's about three centimeters because it's the two uncover plus the one centimeter from the ring to the portion cover. So I get, I pull it back to the, the tract on it. And when I'm, I'm about to be in a perfect position, I don't sheath the whole stent. Right. So then I, I'm tugging and when I'm one about to deploy the stent, I always pull a little bit to make sure that it's getting me. I really don't want to have too much cover inside of the portal vein and I don't want to have on cover in the tract of the portal vein, in the parenchyma.
1: Yeah. And so what you're kind of talking about with that stent deployment is that that tactile sensation where you feel the uncovered distal two centimeters kind of like tugging up against the parenchyma as you're like, because that part's already partially deployed. So you're pulling back and you feel it bump into the liver
0: parenchyma. Correct. Absolutely right.
1: All right. So now that you've got the stent deployed, so you've got your landing zone cephalad and you got your landing zone distally. What next? You
0: got the stent out. So now we put the stent, so now we're to the dilation. So now the new Viator that is 8 to 10 millimeters, you, you have a little more control over the diameter of the stent. I always start with an 8. I mean, I always start with an 8, I dilate it, and then I measure the gradient, right? I measure the pressures again to make sure that whether I reached my goal or not, right? So I forgot to mention another tip. I, I don't know if we can go back a little bit Throw it in. What is it? So sometimes it's the people having a really hard time to advance the, sh- the sheath back into the portal vein. So let's say that you do a portogram, and uh, you want to you want to measure the length of the tract, right? So you have a pigtail catheter with the tip in the splenic vein, and then you have the tip about a centimeter in uh, a centimeter from the ostium of the portal vein. So you inject simultaneously in a way that you have the whole parenchyma traced on it in a way that you can count how many centimeters and you're going to deploy. So then the people sometimes having a really hard time to put the sheath back in there. So what I use is the same balloon, a balloon to advance the sheath back into the portal. I inflate the balloon. And when I'm deflating the balloon, I advance the sheath over the balloon. It's a common technique. A lot of people use it, but, but still, I feel some people struggling trying to advance in the introducer of the sheath. Sometimes it doesn't want to go because in the right heart, you know, it's making a loop in the heart. So I, I think the balloon technique to deflate the balloon and advance the sheet over is probably the best way to advance the sheet back into the portal system. So what size balloon do you use? When I'm, if I'm dilating the truck, I use an 8.8, because that will be the minimal diameter that I'm going to use for my stent is going to be eight. So therefore 8.8, that is going to go to any diameter of any biator that you have available. So an 8.8, you're never going to go wrong. By 75, of course, short shaft, because you don't want to be dealing with the long things on it.
1: Okay. So going back to dilation and goals of where you're trying to get that stent, what are you using for your gradient
0: and under what scenarios? Of course, depend how much you started with. Ideally, is to get less than twelve millimeter mercury if it's a bleeder, less than eight if you're trying to get for asitis. But you have patients that have a gradient of forty, so that you know you're not going to get there. So as long as you decrease and actually long time ago, we were writing a paper or a, a book chapter about this, and, and I found some literature that's saying that you increase the gradient 30% of the original gradient, more than 30% decrease of the gradient is enough for bleeding. So in certain circumstances, when you have that, that might be enough. So if you have, I don't know, 30, if you decrease to 20 a gradient, you decrease it significantly. If you're trying to get it to 12, and you might dilate it to 10 and you might still have 20 operating. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to do a barrel? No, not really. I think it's also the pen of the clinical scenario. If it's an emergency. I mean, it's so many variables on it that do you, of course, you have to put all this in context. Of course. Yeah.
1: And we get it that, you know, there's a lot going in for it, but just for your general recommendations, just for, you know, just to be able to talk about it simply using 12 millimeters mercury for bleeders and then eight for recurrent ascites. Correct. But what do you use or can you give some rough guidelines for like when you have really elevated portal pressures? Do you just try and decrease it by 50% and then see, especially with ascites, you just kind of see how it goes. And then if you have to tune the tips up, you can always
0: bring them back. Absolutely, absolutely. And then then also, you know, the other thing to take in consideration is encephalopathy, the pre-procedure encephalopathy of the patient. So nowadays, I mean, honestly, after I mean, in this time of the year, I think we can control encephalopathy really well with uh, medical management, but of course you have to get rid of all the spontaneous shunting. So, I mean, I try to, if the patient has a baseline encephalopathy before the tips, it's not for me a contraindication to do a tip in a patient that has some degree of encephalopathy. Of course, if it's in coma, encephalopathic, common sense, you're not going to do it. But if you have a large spontaneous prenatal shunt or you have a huge viruses, so I tend to embolize them all, despite that I might see antigree flow and I see that it's not opacifying the viruses. You know, you, you do the post-tips program and then you see that there is no opacification of the viruses. I will embolize it because, you know, th- those things It might lead you to recurrent ascites later on. So I rather prefer to have a good shunting and leading me everything to a rate control shunt. Remember, the veins can contract at any time. So you have no way to control the amount of blood that is going through a spontaneous shunt when you have a tips, the radius is fixed. You cannot, I mean, the, the is not going to make it bigger or smaller. If it's 10 millimeters, 10 millimeter period. So therefore you have a more control of the flow over a tips than a vein. So therefore I will get rid of all the viruses or portosystemic shunting as much as I can, if the patient isn't telepathic on it.
1: All right. As far as variceal embolization, same session, different session, just depends on how the tips is going?
0: Yes. Same session as possible, you know, especially probably condition of the patient is in a patient that is really crushing. Of course, you want to get in and out as much as fast as you can, but I would try to embolize as much as possible on it. Okay. If you struggle because, you know, you, the portal vein was thrombosed or whatever, sure, you're going to need to stage the procedure, right? So what I try to avoid of staging as much as I possible, just trying to get as much as I can in one session on it.
1: Okay. And is that your approach with varices in general? Is that any kind of varices that you saw on the pre-tips portogram, you're going to go and embolize those? Or is it just whenever you're concerned for like underlying encephalopathy?
0: Correct. Underlying encephalopathy. Because I mean, unless the patient was bleeding too though, right? If the patient was bleeding, I might go after that. Also depend on the gradient. If I reach a really nice gradient, and I see that the viruses are not opacifying anymore and the patient don't have any encephalopathy, I might say, just call it a day, we're done here. But if the patient was recently bleeding or has a uh, baseline encephalopathy that was treated, right? So let's say a patient was already rifaximin and was already in lactulose and it's, it still has a couple admissions of encephalopathy and I need to do a tips. Sure, I'm gonna embolize those viruses for sure, you know, because I know that this is gonna become an issue later on on it.
1: Okay, I get it. So. I see where you stand on the varices. I was just trying to drill down a little bit on it in terms of indications for variceal embolization. So now that you've you've got this then, we've done the variceal embolization, pressures are done. Is there anything that you do in the immediate post-procedural area when the procedure is basically done, you know, your, your sheath is pulled and you're holding pressure. Is there anything else you do immediately in the post-op care as far as medications or clinical management before you turn them over? I assume they're they're going to ICU after.
0: No, necessarily, though. To be honest with you, I don't send if, of course, it's, a bl- it's an acute bleeder, common sense, right? So, but I will say that a first thing is a patient, if the patient was for ascites, and I drain four liters, eight liters of ascites, not even eight. If I say five or four, let's put it four to make it a little more in the gray zone. I usually give them albumin after the procedure. I usually give them 100 gram of albumin. I might give it as much as I feel that they can tolerate it. If I can give it 100, I give it 100 grams of vitamin, and I usually give it 20 20 milligrams of Lasix to avoid the the edema, the pulmonary edema. And also it depends, since all my patients are going to have an echo prior to the procedure, so then I know how the cardiac function is before the procedure. But if I'm a little concerned of a little degree of right heart failure or something, that at this point right now, it's not really a contraindication for me unless that it's a severe right heart failure, you know, because all these patients, I get them to right heart cath. And I measure the gradients, and I measure the wedge pulmonary pressures, and I estimate how much the hemodynamic of the whole body is going. So I usually give them Lasix, 20 milligrams of Lasix, and I send it to the floor or the ICU, depending upon how the patient started. If it's an elective tip for ascites and the male score was 13, I send the patient to the floor, and I essentially, if it's really early in the morning, I may even send it home the next day, or even the same day in the afternoon. It also depends on the things all right. One thing that I really want to emphasize to you about the post operative care all my patients go to a tips, they're going to go to a tips, they start rifaximin two weeks prior to the tips. Even they say, well, the patient was not never had encephalopathy, I don't care. It's going to get rifaximin two weeks prior to the tips, and lactulose is going to be added the day of the tips. So, right after they're done with the tips, they're going to get into lactulose and sink. We just think that is a part of the metabolism of the protein. So in many of our patients, we measure the level of zinc, vitamin D and vitamin E, but we still give them zinc 220 milligrams twice a day for all of them. And with that, I think we have a pretty good control of the encephalopathy.
1: All right. So that's a nice cocktail. So Rifaximin two weeks before, lactulose day of.
0: And then I, I forgot, when do you start the zinc? Zinc, the day of the day of the, well, technically they should be in zinc. All the cirrhotic patients in general, they're going to be deficient of zinc vitamin D and E, you can measure it. We measure them all the time, the level of the vitamins. But um, most of them will give them vitamin uh, sync despite of the level, 220 milligrams twice a day. Okay. That's a good tip. I haven't heard that one. It's part of the metabolism of the protein. Help you to metabolize that and by the liver. Okay.
1: All right. So these patients are staying one day. It seems like some of them are going home same day, which is is great. What does follow up look like for these patients outside of the hospital? Like, you know, they've they've been discharged, whether it was one day or two day, but then when are you seeing them back?
0: Okay. One more thing I want to really emphasize. I've strongly put all, I have instructed all my PAs that they should not be using PPI on these patients. That is more than proven and documented and enough papers showing that the Pantoprazole, Nexium, all these drugs increase the risk of encephalopathy. So I have a few patients that have been after tips in being having encephalopathy, and it's just essentially the PPIs, the Pantoprazole. Because, you know, they were having bleeding and the GI physicians put it on uh, protonics to uh, 40 million twice a day. And it's dose related, although so they get a plateau. But if you have a patient that is taking uh, protonics, they have increased risk of encephalopathy. So avoid uh, PPIs and we put them on Pepsi or sucrophate. If they really want to have anything for gastroflux or anything like, you know, bounding for, to avoid any type of ulcers or whatever. There's not really data supporting that that is going to decrease the risk of of Bicill bleed, but the people use it because they thought it were candy before. Right. So people just prescribe as it was candy. But now if you really see about it, a lot of patients that are having a a refractory encephalopathy is secondary to the use of PPIs and plutonics.
1: Well, that's great. That's a great tip. I just wanted to drill down on that. So. Let's go back to the the regimen. So it's Rifaximin two weeks before, lactulose day of, zinc day of, and then counsel your patients, no PPIs. Exactly
0: right. And of course, in regards of the diuretics, because we have to also be counting the diuretics. So the patient will stay in the same diuretics that they were before, unless that they were diuretic intolerant, right? If they say patient, you know, was having increased uh, worsening of the renal function, or that's the reason why we did the the tips because they were in, uh, diuretic intolerant. So then I try to minimize the use of diuretics as much as possible. But I really don't want to take them off because they they still going to have require some paracentesis. So I want to have, create a good impact in their quality of life. Saying, hey, listen, we did this procedure to decrease the amount of ascites that you have. But at the same time, you have to continue a little diuretics. So otherwise, you're going to have a little overload. They're going to have ankle swelling and stuff like that. So usually, what what they do is they have ankle swelling, so compression hoses, and continue with the diuretics on it. Lasix and Espiral So I'm going to go with the, the, your question that I didn't answer to you. So how they're going to come back to my clinic is usually in about two weeks to a month after the procedure. I ordered an ultrasound and TIPS ultrasound or ultrasound of the liver with a velocities on it because it's just for baseline. And, you know, of course, you know that it's not going to give you too much more information than that. And uh, CMP, CBC and INR. And those are going to be my first evaluation after the tips on. Usually after we do the first month evaluation, we see it three months later. So in the three months, we usually get cross-sectional imaging and uh, labs as well. You know, same idea, CMP, INR, C V C. And at that time we start to manage all the, the radics and the other medications. So, I don't tend to change any type of medications in the first month. I do it on the third month. Again, I, I don't expect, I mean, a, uh, you can imagine that in my, in our practice, in in BIR with us, so we are really, have a really specialized poor hypertension clinic. So we manage diuretics. I manage all that. I manage the and all that I do it myself. So I don't rely on the, on the GI or the, the hepatologist doing that for, for us. We just do it. You know, people is usually worry about it. Is thinking, oh, I don't want to manage uh, LASIKs when we are handling, if you have a PVD patient, you're putting a patient on Plavix that is 10 times more associated with complication than really uh, diuretics. It's really hard to kill a vision in, with Lasix. Let me tell you that. All right. Well, back table audience, you heard it here.
1: Now, if you're giving Plavix, we just need to doctor up and go ahead and get more comfortable with prescribing
0: Lasix. Yeah, absolutely. I, I it's, it's not really the hard, it's not really the hard time. I, I've been trying, we develop courses for ascites management of that. It's just because it's such a little area that we have to learn on and it's really simple. So that's the point on that.
1: So on that three-month visit, where you're getting the cross-sectional imaging, what are you looking for there?
0: So you know there are a few things. I want to see this in my new baseline. I want to see if there is any vascular difference that I create with the tips. You know there are several reports that people, several studies showing that you might gel a little branch of the hepatic vein or the part of the artery. So then you might have an area of the infarct. You change the some flow dynamics on it, and the, you know some of these patients. Later on, you're gonna have, you're gonna be looking for HEC, right? So therefore, I wanna make sure that we're not altering anything different than the enhancement of the parenchyma. So with the idea that it's gonna have some confusions later on and I can attribute it to the tips, you know, because we see it um, in three months and then we always see the patients every six months. I follow everything of every portal hypertension patient every six months, for sure. I mean, maybe a little closer, if we need to do some adjustments of the portal hypertension, management, or even if it's for, for HCC, because turn out the patient also HCC, but we see them every six months for the for the photohypertension for sure, you know, for HCC screening. Of course.
1: So the three month is is your new baseline. And then from there moving forward, you're seeing every six months, and then they're also getting screened for HCC. So it's nice to know what they look like three months after their tips. Correct. All right. So George, we talked about a lot of stuff. Are there any resources that kind of come to front of mind that you think of for either early trainees or people who are just now getting into portal hypertension management? It doesn't have to be just tips related, but any articles that you've read either about PPIs or about Lasix administration that you found helpful, like as you've, I mean, you know, you don't get to where you are today in, you know, an overnight course, but is there any like papers that have kind of hit home for you that have helped
0: you with your management? absolutely I will i mean if you if you want, I will give you the list of the papers that I felt that really changed my way of seeing the tips so and uh, you can I mean I'm not sure what they're in the in the website we can add it on, and I will give you the links for all of them.
1: Yeah, man, we we can do that. We're a sophisticated operation here. We can. Well, I know that. Do that. I know that. I know <laughs> you do. You guys do. I, uh-huh.
0: I, I, I was trying not to. I, I was just trying to force you to. So speaking, but that's okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to to get you enough information for this. And I will give you. I'm happy to share all these information on it because I think it's, it's relevant, though. I mean, actually, even I can share many of the slides of things that we that have been presenting before with the idea that you can have how I do my work up in an algorithmic way. You know, I have an, a complete algorithm. If this is the gradient. This is what I do. If this is if the patient male score is this, this, is what we do. That in a, because that's how we develop our practice on it. You know, so how we, you know, put our portal hypertension clinic together. So I, and I think uh, it's important to share that because if we only doing it, it's worthless. If we all doing portal hypertension clinic, then we're really gonna take a higher position as an IR in the management of portal hypertension. That to be honest with you, this topic. It's a hundred percent IR world. I mean, this is for us, not for anyone else.
1: You're totally right about that. There are so few specialties that understand the portal system, like the IR doc. I mean, this is really where we reign. I mean, no one can touch us on this one. I'm with you. Oh, no,
0: without a doubt, without a doubt. I think, uh, I think we just have to learn a little more of the hepatology or the GI basics of it, and then we can become essentially, uh, portal hypertension experts. And in all the from the diagnosis all the way to the patient's diet on it. I mean, truly speaking. So
1: I mean, that, that was actually one of the re- reasons that I was really excited to have you on is that I think a lot of IR docs are doing this in tertiary referral centers. I mean, I mean, there's there's tons of docs that are doing it in tertiary referral centers. What I, I think is really neat about your practice is that y'all's model has allowed you to do this outside of a tertiary referral center. Now I know you guys are partnered with one, but Portal hypertension management can be for the community, too. And so I, I think it's great what you guys are doing. You sound like you have an awesome IR practice going there.
0: My friend, that's what I, I want to inspire anyone who listen to the podcast to get it in. If they want to get in touch with me, touch with you and get all this going, happy to. Because I think we have to all take a grasp on it and do it because we can explode this. This will make or even the interventional oncology world 10 times in a higher level. Because where do you think the patients are going to develop portal hypertension before they develop what you see? That's right. So we get the patient from the beginning.
1: Well, George, uh, did I leave any question or any stone unturned? Did we miss anything? I feel like we covered this one pretty well.
0: I think we have a pretty grasp on it. I mean, to be honest, we can talk about portal hypertension for days because I have, I mean, I can tell you many patients that I have done several other stuff to not only to manage a portal hypertension or only doing tips. It's tips plus, you know, like a partial spenicardial embolization or doing a Denver shunt to increase the nutrition, improve mal score to be able to do a tips later on. So, and I think this is a world that we have to explore more. Of course, I can't do it. It's not a small group of people who have to do it. We have to do it all together. And I think I wish that, you know, I have more resources to be able to show all the stuff that we're doing in our practice because they are quite incredible. George, I mean, you got a good resource here. We'd love to have you back on the show. Well, anytime. I will be happy to be here anytime.
1: All right. To our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast but want more, please check out the show notes of this episode. We're going to post a lot of links. George, as promised, he's going to send us some stuff and we're going to get those things up. Those are going to be able to be found at www.backtable.com. And Argon, thanks for sponsoring today's show. That's very nice. We really appreciate the support. For others interested in supporting the show, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast out on social media, or go old school and just tell a colleague about it. Old-fashioned word of mouth is really helpful as we build this community. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Backtable Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts... Chris Beck, Sabine
1: Dond, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from... Caleb Hodson. And Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from... Zubi Sayed. Article and Transcript, support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
0: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.